The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's what this season is all about because a great chef is able to bring together a bunch of bland ingredients to form something delicious. So when you sit down to eat a good meal, you're eating something greater than the sum of the ingredients. A great coach creates synergy within their team. Even if pound by pound they're outmatched by their opponent, a team with synergy can always pull off an upset. The team is more than the sum of their talent. And a great storyteller does the exact same thing. Here's what I'm getting at. Towards the end of his life, a man named John sat down to pass on the story of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. John followed Jesus for years and then spent the next six decades spreading his message. He knew him better than anyone. So how did he go about passing on the story of the most thought-provoking, world-changing human who has ever existed? With 15,635 words. That's it. We call it the Gospel According to John, and if typed out today single space, it would be just over 30 pages. And then he called it a day. No sequel, no prequel, just 15,635 words. So why so short? He undoubtedly had more to say. In fact, he even ends the thing with this line, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Hyperbole, of course, but point taken, John left so much out, which I find to be really frustrating. I mean, not that I expected him to write every single thing down, but he certainly could have given us a little more than 30 pages. Or maybe that's the point. Maybe. Just like a talented chef or a great coach, John composed something that is way bigger than the sum of its parts. And that is what we are going to see this season. John's gospel, I'm convinced, is a treasure map built with seven signs or clues along the way that all lead us to a greater truth, the treasure at the end of the gospel, a truth that is so simple a child could understand it and yet so complex the world itself is not big enough to hold all the literature it would take to fully explain it. See, I now see that final verse about all the books it would take to fully explain everything as an invitation, an invitation to keep digging and discover the hidden world waiting to be explored just beneath the surface. As if John is saying, I did write it all down. It's all right here in these pages, but you'll have to search because the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. This is a story about the first sign John included in his gospel. It's about a wedding and 908 bottles of wine. The crash of the door startled him awake. This was the second time in the last hour he had dozed off on duty, tired at the end of his watch. He grasped the handle of his weapon and started to stand, but the man who entered had already rushed past him. The flickering light of the torch threw vague shadows along the corridor as he hurried on his mission. In the room at the end of the corridor, the young man knew nothing of the intrusion. His eyes strained and his hands cramped. He had fallen into a deep sleep after a day of copying and transcribing. 
The life of a scribe, while not as strenuous as others, certainly left him exhausted at night. The light of the torch, ahead of its source by seconds, breaks the darkness. Suddenly the messenger is at the threshold of the room. The wind that follows swift movement and the brightness of fire startle the young scribe from his sleep before the messenger gets to the bed. The scribe jumps to his feet, defensive, nervous. Unlike his brothers down the corridor, he had not been trained for confrontation. His parents and the local rabbi had recognized his intelligence. He was too smart for anything but studying. They had sent him to tutor under the brightest minds in Ephesus, where he spent his childhood absorbing the deep mysteries of his faith and his people. It was a paradise for a boy such as him. He anticipated a life of learning and prestige. Then, two days ago, a man approached him with an opportunity. An elder at the church recruited him for a scribe work on behalf of a man he had great respect for. John, the apostle, the one whom Jesus loved. At least that was the rumor. The scribe could hardly believe this generous offer. He expected the job to be filled with stories and tales of the early days of the apostles, of the life of Jesus, the Messiah. He'd expected renown as the last scribe of the last apostle, respect from all. What he did not expect was for the job to begin during the fourth watch. He'd been waiting in the room for two days, anxious that it was all a trick. Now, while the messenger was catching his breath, the young man's mind, normally so trustworthy, began to fill with confusion, fear, and excitement. He's ready for you. So at some point in history, someone sat down and wrote what we now call the Gospel according to John. This is a story about how that process may have happened. The classical view is that it was written by John the Apostle, which I find endlessly fascinating. And here's why. Jesus gave John the nickname, Son of Thunder. Now we think it's because he had a tendency to lose his cool. Like one time when they came across a group of people they disagreed with and John asked Jesus if he should call fire down from heaven to consume them. And yet his writings towards the end of his life are packed full of things like this. Beloved, we ought to love one another. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. On and on we could go. By the end, this man was no longer the son of thunder. He was the apostle of love. John went through an amazing transformation throughout the course of his life, and I've learned enough to know that you pay attention to any man or woman who has learned the secret to transformation. It was our third day in Cana. We had been invited to a wedding. The scribe desperately gets out his materials. He didn't know they would start so quickly. The whole walk over, the scribe had been filled with nervous excitement. He could barely control his own body. His eyes were still adjusted to being woken in the middle of the night, his mind still half dreaming. The walk helped warm his blood and slowly the world brightened at the prospect of the coming days. What was he like? His mind, alert now, raced with questions. What am I to do for him? Why now, after two days? Their path led to an unassuming house at the top of the hill. From the roof, you would be able to see the whole city, the ancient gymnasium, the temple to the old Greek idols, the sea in the distance. The threshold of dawn had just showed over the horizon and the comforting smell of salt and fish filled the young man with anticipation. 
John had paused and looked over his shoulder at the young man scrambling to get his materials ready. He smiled warmly. He remembered that nervous excitement, the figure of youth wanting to prove itself to be worthy of the call it's not quite sure it deserves. He turns to face the fresh face. Are we ready? Scribes were a common practice in these days. For example, Romans 16.22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Which is odd because Paul wrote Romans, right? Well, yeah, of course, but apparently he had a scribe assisting him in his endeavor. Now, notice the scribe doesn't take any credit for the content, just the writing down of everything Paul was saying. But if Paul, a highly educated man, had a scribe, my best guess is John, an uneducated, ordinary man who grew up on the water fishing, had a scribe as well. And why not? Why pass up an opportunity to share the stories of Jesus with a young, zealous, up-and-coming leader? So John and the scribe sat down to get to work and created something truly special. Faced with the dilemma of telling such an amazing story in such a short amount of time, they create a gospel that is bigger than itself. A gospel with seven signs, each done for a specific reason in a specific order that all come together to say something profound. To get there, we need to follow the signs one at a time. So let's get started with sign number one. Jesus had paused on their walk. The rest of the group hung back hesitantly behind. Not one among them feels like they should be there, but Jesus, Rabbi, seems calm and at ease. They shuffle and look at each other, getting a good sense of who they were as a collective. They would consider themselves Jewish, at least Jewish enough, but to be called by a rabbi pushed most of them outside the comfortable label they claimed for themselves by birthright. None of them would have considered himself likely to be picked to follow. Now follow was all they could do. Any young Jewish man knew that once called following, often literally, a rabbi was their only job. Do what he does, say what he says, think what he thinks. This rabbi, however, he didn't seem to do, say, or think like anyone expected. He seems at complete ease wherever he goes, which he doesn't seem to know before he gets there. He appears surprised and assured whenever he gets wherever his feet take him. The group of men that followed him couldn't piece together the master plan, if there was one at all. From around the corner, a messenger appears. Had Rabbi not stopped, they would have run into each other. John is continually amazed by these coincidences. The messenger recites his message, but John is distracted by his own thoughts. Rabbi turns to the group. We've been invited to a wedding in Cana. A wedding in Cana, John thinks. That's a whole day's journey west. Don't we have better things to do than go to a wedding? I didn't leave the family business just to wander around Israel going to parties. I meant for more than that. Rabbi looks at John and smiles. We're going to go. He abruptly starts walking in the direction of Cana. The men look at each other, bewildered. Peter shrugs and begins to follow. John, not to be outdone, is close behind. Thinking back on those days must have made John smile at times. They accomplished so much, but in such an obscure way. If your objective is to teach your disciples how to change the world, 
Hanging out at a wedding doesn't seem like something you have time to devote an entire day to. But the rabbi always had time. I call interruptions inconveniences. He seemed to call them opportunities. He always showed up, fully present, with everyone, always. Never in a hurry, never rushed, never trying to satisfy that voice deep down, screaming that he isn't enough unless he hits a certain quota or makes X amount of disciples or whatever. He accomplished more than any person in the history of the world, yet never at the expense of being fully present with every person he met. The two servants reluctantly approached the master of the banquet. Normally, they would be reluctant to approach him anyway, but they knew this day was very important to him, and the news they carried would turn even the gentlest man to cruelty. The master looked expectantly at them. They each glanced at the other, hoping he would start talking first. The master's eyes tell them someone better talk or get out. A few more moments pass and the color in the master's cheeks begin to turn red. It's the wine. It's the wine. One of the servants hurriedly murmurs. Excuse me? The master says, hoping he heard them wrong. The wine, master. It's all gone. The other servant says weakly. The master stares at the two men as if they had just assaulted him. He is actually speechless. Yet his look told the servants all they needed to know. They hurried away to fix this problem, but what could they do? This may seem like a small thing, and it is, which is why what happens next is so beautiful. Remember, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he tells them to ask for their daily bread because he cares about the little day-to-day -day things that happen in our lives. And although running out of wine may seem small compared to a lot of the situations to come, it was a really big deal to the master of the feast. Weddings are important moments and they went big back in the first century. We're talking several day long events. And as the master of the feast, your job is to make sure everything runs smoothly. If it doesn't, it all comes back on you. So we're talking about social suicide here. He is about to be the talk of the town for all the wrong reasons. Again, not the end of the world, but a really big deal for this one individual soul, which is exactly what Jesus seems to care about, the one. It was important to this man, so it was important to Jesus, which, by the way, is really good news for you and for me. John narrows his eyes. He can feel the tension in the room. He looks furtively around, seeking its source. He's been able to do this since he was young, feel and find the problem in a large group. More cursed than blessing, he spots the servants coming away from the master of the feast. That must be it. He glances over at Rabbi. Rabbi appears not to notice any of the awkwardness filling the banquet. In fact, he doesn't appear to be present at the banquet at all. He sits alone on a step at the edge of the hall. He had just finished a brief exchange with his mother. Rabbi stares off into the distance. John, holding back, wonders what this man could be thinking. Oh, to have the burdens of a rabbi, to have that sense of self and knowledge. Rabbi sighs and turns back towards the room. He calls the two servants. 
John is surprised. He didn't think Rabbi had noticed them. Desperate for any sort of assistance, the two men rush over. The conversation takes place just out of John's earshot, but John sees the servant's eyes widen in delight and wonder. Rabbi is motioning to the six large stone jars that lie in one wall of the room, the sort of jars traditionally used for ceremonial washing. He watches as the servants begin to fill them with water. An odd time for washing ceremony, isn't it? The servants work as fast as they can to finish filling the jars. Whatever Rabbi's plan is, better work, thinks John. The master is already at the end of patience with them. Take it to the master, Rabbi says softly. The two servants stop and stare with fear at Rabbi. They look at each other and back at him. They know they are not to return to the master until the wine problem has been fixed. Rabbi smiles and nods at them. John recognizes that look. It is the look that convinced him and all the others to give up their lives and follow Jesus. John breathes with relief, but the servants shake as they carry the water towards the master's table. Remember John's dilemma here. Out of everything Jesus did, he has to decide what to include. And so he goes with a story about wine at a wedding. Yes, for several reasons, but here are two. Number one, they were out of wine. And Jesus is a big fan of having a good time and celebrating things that need to be celebrated. Number two, these water containers were there for ceremonial cleaning. Jews would use the water in them to clean themselves. So Jesus was making a profound statement. Years later, he would pick up a glass of wine and call it his blood poured out for many. Because rituals and ceremonial washing are fine up to a point, but Jesus had something bigger in mind, himself. He is the way, he is the light. And that evening in Cana, if someone came to that water container hoping to be made clean with water, they would have stumbled upon something much, much bigger. So simple miracle at a wedding, yeah, for sure. And yet at the same time, a sign, our first sign pointing towards something more. The servants approach the master of the feast with caution. Too much hinges on this moment. The master's eyes lock onto them. What could they possibly want now? They can't possibly fix the problem yet. He knew that the wine was not their fault, but he couldn't help himself. The pressure of hosting this wedding had taken its toll on him and his family. Their future in the community depended on this going well, and it wasn't. He notices a cup in the hand of one of the servants. His breathing slows slightly. He reaches out for it and takes a drink. The servants wait for his reaction. They see him hold the wine in his mouth an extra moment. He closes his eyes. They brace for the outburst. But instead, his eyes open wide in delight. A smile flashes. Where did you get this? It was... The master waves him off and calls the bridegroom over. This is good wine, the master of the feast says incredulously to the groom. Everyone puts their choice wine out first and saves the bad stuff for when we've had too much. The bridegroom only shrugged. He had had already too much wine and was too flush with excitement from his big celebration to care what the master was talking about. He made his way back to his bride. The master laughed and turned to the servants. How much do we have? The servants, relieved, laughed back and looked at each other. Plenty, they said in unison. 
The master laughed with the enthusiasm and volume of a man whose life was suddenly restored to him. He had been brought back from the brink of a disaster. He threw his arms around the servants and then turned back to the dancing. John had seen it all. He was astonished by the miracle. What did it mean? He looked over at Rabbi. This man, who had called him to follow, sat alone. He locked eyes with John and smiled. Okay, so there are six water jars that each hold 20 to 30 gallons, and John takes the time to let us know that each was filled up to the brim. That's 180 gallons of wine, or maybe a better way to say it, 908 bottles. 908 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. For some reason, I always pictured a few glasses, but that's just not accurate. We're talking about a whole lot of wine and not the cheap stuff either. So what does that tell us about Jesus? Several things, but for starters, that he is over the top generous. Jesus would later call himself the way as if to say, hey, if you wanna know the secret to real life, live an abundantly generous one. Not only does he bail out the master of the feast, he does it in style with a whole bunch of the very best wine. John watches as the rabbi takes in the scene. Rabbi looks on with indifference at the master's reaction to the wine, as if that were the least important part of what he had just done. Peter and Andrew, on the other hand, are glowing with excitement. Like John, they had left a promising fishing career to follow the rabbi, and until this moment, we're not sure if it had been worth the effort. Now? They soaked the attention into their very souls, it seemed. Peter especially. The miracle went to his head faster than the wine, but John notices the rabbi stares intently at the master after the commotion has died down. He seems much more concerned with the man than the miracle. Rabbi and the disciples make their goodbyes from the wedding. They had hoped to spend a few days resting, but Jesus was not one to stay in one place long. He set his feet, and thus theirs, towards Capernaum. John's voice fades as the men make their way to Capernaum. The scribe looks up, waiting to see if the apostle is done with his story. The distant look on the old man's face told the young man that it would be all for the night. He began to gather his supplies, but as he did, he couldn't help but dwelling on the story he was just told. Water into wine. That was the story the Apostle wanted to start with. He understood the small kindness of Jesus in that moment, yet it seemed so insignificant. The scribe could feel tugging at the corners of the narrative that something bigger might have happened at that wedding with those jars. But it would have to wait. He crossed the frame into the high sun of the day. Sign number one is done. Jesus and his disciples head down the road towards sign number two. So much more to come. What do all these signs point toward? Well, this might help. In light of this entire episode, go back and read how John begins this story about the wine. The opening line tells us that the wedding in Cana happened on the third day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about our project at storiesinscripture.com. Follow us on Twitter at SIS Project or follow us on Instagram at Stories in Scripture.